Hello, you are tuned in to WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Community Wellness Watch, a program about public health. My name is Emma Weiss, WERU intern and your host for the next hour. Special thanks to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. You may have heard our brief Community Wellness Watch announcements throughout the past couple of months, and we are so excited to bring you our second full-length program for this project. Each month, I sit down with healthcare providers to talk about how they've adjusted their practices throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and how they continue to keep our communities healthy and safe. This is not meant to serve as professional medical advice, but rather we hope to inform listeners of resources in the area and give a huge thank you to these providers for their very important work. Today, we'll be talking about housing for children and families in need from a number of different perspectives. It is my absolute pleasure to have with me today, Travis Bryant, who is the Executive Director of Adoptive and Foster Families of Maine, Inc. and the Kinship Program. Travis, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Emma, for having me. Appreciate this opportunity. And we also have with us Robin Chamberlain, who is the Director of Safe Families for Children, the Maine Chapter. Robin, we are so glad to have you with us. I'm so uh, glad to thank you so much for the invite, and I look forward to hearing from everyone. And finally, we have with us Tracy Hare, who is the Executive Director of HOME, Inc. Thank you so much for being here, Tracy. Thanks so much, Emma. Nice to meet you. I'm happy to be here with uh, Travis and Robin. All right. So to start things off, and maybe we can begin with Travis, could you tell me and our listeners a bit about your organization and about the services you provide to children and families? Yeah. So Adoptive and Foster Families of Maine and the Kinship Program provide empathetic, non-judgmental listening support uh, to resource families, which are also known as foster, adoptive, kinship families, grandparents raising grandchildren. Uh, we also provide a variety of other supports like uh, support groups in all counties. And I think a little later on, we'll talk about how we shifted uh, through the pandemic for those. And uh, we also provide peer mentors along with a variety of other programs that are that are all funded through donations uh, like our back to school program. We have holiday gift giving program. We help kids uh, attend camps. So campership that serves as small respite opportunities for families and kind of gives that normalizing experience for children that may be in care, whether it's foster care, kinship care. And then we also sometimes provide uh, emergency assistance. Thank you to the John T. Gorman Foundation that helps us uh, with that program and provides the, the funding for so. And so when families are needing a little bit of assistance, it's a one-time opportunity for them to be able to bridge those gaps before they can get connected with other services. So that's the the mile high view of it. Great. Thank you. Before we move on, I'm wondering if you could clarify the difference between adoptive and foster care and the kinship program. Yeah. So um, I think we help support all three families. And so sometimes folks will adopt either privately or they'll adopt through the child welfare system. Uh, and we're there to support them through that adoption and after that adoption uh, with material goods, some guidance as to you know, what what avenue to take and how to maybe get through it, how to navigate the array of systems, whether it's child welfare. We work with a variety of other folks to help them with school systems or behavioral health programs. And so the difference is that adoption is no different than if you gave birth to the child, that's that's your child. Foster care, as many know, is, is uh, when a child is in need of a temporary home uh, due to their parents' you know, having some difficult times and potentially putting them in some unsafe situations. And so we help support those families who are opening up their hearts and homes uh, for kiddos. For context, according to Maine Children's Alliance, on the last day of December in 2020, there were estimated to be 2,204 children in foster care, which is a 23% increase from estimates in 2018. And then kinship care can happen either through the means of foster care or it can be informally without any legal relationship status. When I mean legal relationship, I mean that there's no guardianship paperwork um, through the courts of probate or, um, you know, some folks will have a power of attorney 
or something that binds them legally so they can make decisions for the child, such as medical or school care. So we help folks that are caring for either their loved one's child or another another person's child is kind of a way to sum it all up and bring them all together. So we'll often refer to them as resource families to put them under one kind of thing because they are their resource for that child. They're there to help them, nurture them, and guide them uh, through this difficult time of their life. Here's Robin Chamberlain, Executive Director of Safe Families for Children in Maine. So Safe Families for Children is a volunteer-driven, professionally supported movement of local communities and churches. And we're a national organization, so we actually started in 2003 in Chicago when I was the director of foster care for a local agency. And in 2010, upon coming to Maine, I helped start um, Safe Families for Children in Maine. And so since that time, we are serving all of Maine, um, with the exception right now of the Aroostook County area. Um, we just don't have enough volunteer support there yet. And so what we do is provide an opportunity for parents who are isolated and struggling with some life you know, we all have life struggles <laughs> and uh, parents, you know, as parents also. And so they could call Safe Families for Children if they don't have like an aunt or an uncle or a good friend to call. And then they could ask for support, whether it's hosting a kiddo overnight uh, for a length of time or becoming what we call a family friend, which is what family friends do, and um, come alongside the family uh, we have family coaches that cheer parents on for the goals that they've established for the struggle that they're going through. And all together, it's really hopefully helping folks be able to reduce the risk of having their kiddos be in unsafe environments, as um, Travis explained, AFFM helps support. Um, and so really becoming a network of folks that parents can choose to continue to be involved with. So for example, a little story, uh, I was hosting some years ago in 2010, and I'm still connected with a parent who called us and we came alongside as Safe Families. And now, you know, I'm informally, not through Safe Families, but she's still part of a greater network of people and she's not isolated anymore. So basically, uh, that's what we do. And it's all voluntary. So just like you or I, if we're having a struggle again, we'd call on our own and uh, see what kind of supports we could establish. And parents can do that with Safe Families for Children. And then the volunteers are vetted in some similar ways in terms of safety that foster families are or resource families. And yet it's all voluntary. So there's no financial uh, reimbursement for folks who are coming alongside families. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> So um, Home Inc., uh, we, we run a homeless shelter program right here in Hancock County, actually just down the road from WERU. This is Tracy Hare, Executive Director of Home Inc. Um, we have four homeless shelters. Three of those homeless shelters serve uh, parents with children or caregivers with uh, children. We also have a licensed daycare, and that program serves children from the community as well as uh, kids who are uh, living in our homeless shelters. We have a soup kitchen and a food pantry, as well as a summer camp mentor program. Uh, similar to what Travis was saying, we, our program, it's just recognizing that sometimes kids need more than just a scholarship. They need somebody to help them get that backpack, that pair of shoes, bathing suit, towel, or just check in to see if parents can actually get the kid to camp. So we help with that as well. We have an after-school program as well. And uh, we have a learning center and lots of uh, Christmas giving programs and things like that. But our primary focus uh, is uh, homelessness and families experiencing homelessness. To give a little bit of context, according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, in 2020, it was estimated that in Maine, about 2,097 people are experiencing homelessness on a given night. And of those 2,097, about 38.5% of these folks are experiencing homelessness as a family. We've been around since 1970, so we're 51 years old this year. 
thank you all for those fantastic introductions. One of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you all is because a huge issue throughout COVID and continuing has been people gathering and not being able to gather and the movement of bodies through spaces. And when COVID first struck in March of 2020, I am so curious to know how your organizations responded and what the first changes you made to your practices were and just how you adapted during this very challenging year and a half. For us, uh, it was sort of, if you can imagine building an airplane while flying. This is Tracy Hare from Home Inc. There was very little guidance. I see Travis smiling. I can't see you yet, Robin. But um, there was very little guidance in the beginning from, you know, not many of us knew what was happening back in March. And so we were, uh, for us, we were forced to serve smaller numbers of people in our homeless shelters at, at a bigger distance. So for our county, the question was, how do we serve the same number of families with children or individuals without um, shutting anybody out and without stopping the system, you know, if somebody fell into homelessness during the crisis? So we, Herculean effort, we had to set up a shelter for people who were well. We had to set up shelters for people who had symptoms but um, had not yet tested positive for COVID-19. And then we had to set up quarantine spaces for families with children separate from individuals um, who needed quarantine if they were struggling with substance use. So it was a Herculean effort for us. We uh, we had a house in Ellsworth that a, a donor was selling and said we could use it in the meantime to quarantine families who were um, sick if they became sick. We closed our daycare center temporarily and we got cots from Maine Emergency Management to set that up for quarantine for single mothers with children. And then we, so we had sort of a three flow system all, all together. I think it was about eight locations that we were managing. Um, and then of course, our vehicles, we, we retrofitted the vehicles with plexiglass, um, delivered food to the guests in order to encourage them not to go out and uh, to, you know, this was during the shelter in place. Um, and we uh, provided internet access to every guest. Um, so they had same access to information that we did for the children who couldn't go to school. We were mindful that I grew up in homeless shelters and, and school teachers were my lifeline. So we were really mindful that children had a disconnect. They had a crisis on top of a crisis if they were experiencing homelessness. So all bets were off there. Staff were more friends at that point rather than professionals working in the field. It was challenging uh, not to be able to hug the kids, uh, but that's how we managed. We did a lot more as well, but that's sort of the the big picture. Oh, that really breaks my heart hearing about not being able to hug kids and sort of everyone learning how to show love and affection in different ways throughout the last year and a half. Tracy, when you were sharing about not being able to hug also, I was, breaks my heart too. And I was reminded early on, we would have parents who had their kiddos hosted in volunteer homes and we couldn't provide visitation except from afar. And that was really hard. And we had to collaborate with the parents and the volunteers and so forth to see how best to to manage that. Uh, also, because little ki littler kids, especially, right, toddlers and younger don't really understand uh, that part about seeing their parent but not being able to hug. So, yeah, that was that was tough. Um, I would say with Safe Families, we expanded on the approaches we already had as part of Safe Families. So, for example, we would do, as part of Safe Families, when parents needed this, virtual visits, phone calls, texting, uh, those kinds of things. So we had to expand on that. We followed the CDC guidelines, and we had our own worksheet of asking everyone involved in a potential situation where they were at with COVID and those kinds of things. And then took the, you know, everything from the PPE precautions um, onward. And we flexed with that. And really folks were so, they were so great with being able to do that uh, because as you may guess, families that come to Safe Families, they're already struggling without COVID. And so then COVID just increased many family struggles, as Tracy and Travis could attest to. Uh, and 
then we have other folks struggling, right? Because it's affecting everyone. So we that's what we basically did. And one of our first situations was there was two teenagers that uh, the parent was in the hospital with COVID. This was early on. And we actually had a volunteer family that was able to step up and um, host the two teenagers. You know, there was food delivery at the teenager's bedroom door (laughs) and the host home because that's what had to be done for all of the COVID precautions. So, so that's, uh, people were very flexible and we did what we needed to do to protect everyone as much as possible. With uh, adoptive fostering as a main, you know, we don't work as directly with families as much as Tracy and uh, Robin do. But, um, you know, we we had to quickly transition to, you know, everything being virtual. We also kind of were in a place as we were starting to transition in that when, when it came, as, you know, we were in the midst of redoing our, our data system and updating our website uh, and looking to provide virtual trainings. This the, the pandemic really forced us to do that, but I would, you know, it, it wouldn't have worked as well if it wasn't for organizations uh, like Tracy's and like Robin's, who we've, you know, referred families to. We've had informal kinship families mm-hmm. that have reached out looking for support where we've, especially when it comes to respite or to have a, a family friend, as what Robin was referring to, and we connect them with safe families, and now they're able to find somebody that can help them through through those situations. But then also, we saw that particularly with kinship families, that you know being able to get food, so just being able to connect them with somewhere like the home who has a food pantry, and say you know there's a place right here that can do it. Are you able to get there? Are you able to to get food? If not, okay, then what are some of the other programs out there that may be able to pick something up and bring it to you? Do you have any friends, families? Because I think all too often folks, especially when the pandemic hit, you know, really have that, they're already in an isolated situation. When you become a kinship family or when you're you're feeling like you have nowhere to turn, you're you're either are homeless or about to be or like the families that Robin's working with you feel like you're you're on your own there's no one to help you and now you're in this pandemic and everybody's encouraging you to stay away from others so it just adds that extra layer of needing to be isolated and um, in fear of reaching out and connecting with others so that was really I feel like one of the biggest things that we found ourselves doing was more encouraging in trying to educate folks on, you know, what is safe, what is okay. You still have these basic needs and to meet them. And and then the other piece of it too is those, um, you know, which we found out real quick uh, is that internet access is truly a basic need in order to get children education or to get connected mm-hmm. to supports Absolutely. and services. And so, you know, trying to find out what reduced programs are out there. Something as simple as earbuds. So that way they can have a virtual visit with a birth family and not have the other members of the house here or to be able to, mm. you know, talk with their caseworker. So those were some of the some of the pieces that we were doing and, and really seeing when the pandemic hit. And we still, still most of the stuff we're doing is virtual. And, um, you know, it's, and I think that that need for for pe- connection to be in same spaces is just growing more and more. Absolutely. For those of you just tuning in, um, I want to remind our listeners that this is WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. My name is Emma Weiss, and this is Community Wellness Watch. Today, we are talking about housing for children and families throughout the pandemic with Travis Bryant, who is the Executive Director of Adoptive and Foster Families of Maine, Inc. and the Kinship Program, Robin Chamberlain, who is the Director of Safe Families for Children in Maine, and Tracy Hare, who is the Executive Director of HOME, Inc. Travis was just talking about feelings of isolation for 
families uh, throughout the pandemic due to quarantine and social distancing. And I'm curious to hear from Tracy and Robin as well, specifically about how isolation and social distancing, sort of the social impact that that had on the children and the families you serve, and also about what changed with the development and availability of the COVID-19 vaccine, or if there were changes the vaccine is not available to young children um, still, but I'm wondering how that affected the families that you work with. It was uh, it was hard for the kids. This is Tracy Hare from Home Inc. Uh, if you can imagine, it's the perfect storm. You're you're in a shelter with strangers. Um, folks aren't in good shape always who are in the shelter, and then suddenly your lifeline from school and your case managers and your support systems are on pause. If you can remember in March and April, it took a little while for for the support services to get online and go live. So the substance use, you know, AA meetings and NA meetings and things like that weren't there for parents. And so the parents had an enormous amount of stress. Um, It created the perfect storm for kids because they didn't have the outlet. So we we saw an increase in substance misuse for sure. We saw an increase in CPS involvement for sure, uh, an increase in crisis. So we hired a social worker to help us with that. We recognized very quickly suddenly our shelter staff are having to learn how to be healthcare providers and social workers overnight. So it, it was a real challenge for kids. But, uh, you know, a lot the community rallied. We had donations of toys, you know, learning toys. We had pizza parties. A pizza party really looks like us ordering a bunch of pizza and delivering it to the shelter, not, not actually entering it. Um, enter testing for us. We got a testing license really early. So we were eight. We test every guest upon intake and we are we were and are able to test young children. Usually the mom or dad or caregiver would do that particular test that provided a little safety for us um, in new intakes coming into the shelter so then we providers were able to come back in the shelter case manager support workers and um, as far as the vaccine goes you know as you said we can't um, vaccinate children we had a, a challenge encouraging people to get the vaccine. And so we decided we're part of a a larger shelter network of 37 shelters in Maine. And we created a program of cultural ambassadors and had a a vaccine clinic here. We had about 20 20 folks participate in that. And that was simply other families um, with children or individuals experiencing homelessness became the the trusted person to say, I got my shot because, um, and, and so that that certainly helped. But again, with a homeless shelter system, it's a transient system and it's not, you know, kids don't leave as quickly as they did prior to COVID because there's not a lot of housing as Travis and Robin probably are painfully aware of. Mm. Um, but it, it has uh, certainly helped. But with the transient nature of shelter living, um, we can't assume everybody's had a vaccine. And so that work be- starts again at day one. Like we have a family of four kids that came in two weeks ago and that conversation starts again with that family. So, But we provide access, transportation, and um, we, have a, we have a great health center down the road that's willing to partner with us once we can get folks on board for that. It has been a game changer for staffing as far as staff that are vaccinated now. Um, if there's an exposure now that school has gone back and we have parents working here, um, they can stay on, on, on the stocking pattern. So our shelters are much safer because of the vaccine, because if we have four parents out, we have a fully stocked shelter. Um, so that's been really helpful. That's a big game changer for us and for the kids. Here's Robin Chamberlain. For safe families, uh, it the nature of it is is different as um, Tracy has been sharing than in a congregate living type of situation. It's right. more individualized, and so what we've uh, done is refer people back, you know, parents back and families back to their either healthcare providers or their social workers they may be working with and different folks just encouraging them to have these discussions with the folks that they've already trusted and so forth. And then as I shared earlier, 
we developed a list of questions to ask everyone and then with the understanding and permission that we share the answers to those so that the unit, what we call the circle of support, which includes the caregiver or parent, as well as the children, what they want to do because it's really their choice. Now, of course, we would, again, uh, share that we're following whatever the CDC recommendations are at the time, uh, but the parents and the volunteers all have a choice. So we did have one situation uh, earlier on when a child needed to actually be quarantined with the host family and the host family needed to be quarantined because there was some type of contact, not even as part of safe families necessarily. So again, folks, I think the, the important thing was we were as uh, prayerfully as proactive as we could be to come ahead of situations so that uh, we were able to have at least the plan in place and then folks would make their choices, everyone knowing about the informed choices of everyone else. Here's Travis Bryant, Executive Director of Adoptive and Foster Families of Maine, Inc. and the Kinship Program. You know, when COVID came, we, we you know, closed out our office because we have a material goods or clothing closet so families and children can come in and and get like new or even new clothing that's been donated and so oftentimes when kids are placed on emergency situations they may not come with all those things so we had to close those down and we also weren't holding our support groups anymore we've seen though since the vaccine has come out and you know, kind of, I think many folks may have seen this over the summertime between the vaccine coming out and people getting a little stirred, crazy, so to speak, about being on Zoom and, and not having that connection that we got, you know, uh, an inquiry more of when are our support groups going back in person? When are we going to get to be able to come into the office? And, um, you know, when are we going to start hosting some of these in-person trainings and events? And so we were able to hold a couple smaller events. And I think a part of that was because the vaccine was out and people are feeling more comfortable um, being with others. And so we were able to have some small gatherings and we saw that, you know, this momentum kind of picking up and and going in that direction. Uh, As far as encouraging vaccinations, we worked with the Department of Health and Human Services they did a few different what they call as town hall calls specifically for resource families uh, when the medical director, Adrian Carmack, came on and, and talked about the importance of vaccinations and also, you know, where to go, answered some questions for folks if they did have questions and provided a slew of information uh, to the families as to the, the FAQs of the vaccine and, uh, you know, where to go if they if they needed it. And um, they were encouraging families to, you know, make sure to get vaccinated. And then once children were approved to the age of 12, and they were also doing that and working with kids, too, and making sure that they have, you know, the information they need and that they are consenting in, in, a, in a way that, you know, that way they're they're comfortable with it because, Kids hear all the same, same stuff us adults do. We may not think so, but, you know, they, they hear mm-hmm. a radio ad that is not positive towards it, they're going to question it. If they hear something's very positive towards something, then they may be likely to go right for it. Or even with the, the kids that are dealing with some of these tough situations, you know, they may have that it's too good to be true thought. And so really making sure to take the time and, help kids feel comfortable with things is, is so important. Absolutely. And like, like you're all mentioning, you know, where things are changing, but we're certainly not out of the woods quite yet. So I'd be curious to know, uh, we talked about it a bit, but in a little more detail, what precautions and protocols are still in place today? Um, and what remains the biggest challenge for you and your organization as we deal with the fallout from and continued presence of COVID, particularly with the Delta variant? 
Also, just to give a bit more general background information for our listeners, Maine Children's Alliance reports that children living apart from their families experience disproportionate impacts of COVID-19. Young people living in congregate facilities, such as residential treatment centers or in foster care, were at greater risk of contracting COVID-19, lost access to family visitation, like we were talking about earlier, and generally faced more challenges returning to their homes and to their communities. For safe families, uh, we actually recently had to uh, cancel and will be rescheduling and go virtual for a volunteer appreciation. For our volunteers, we were planning uh, some live events and groups. And because of the last month or so where we've had different counties beyond that substantial or, you know, the whatever markers they are, um, we thought it just best all around to go ahead and reschedule for a later time and do something virtual. So that's, you know, the up and down nature. I think, again, seeking to be proactive, it helps the folks that we're coming alongside of as well as volunteers. Uh, it helps them feel better about going forward. And so we're grateful to be able to you know, to do that. Uh, one thing that we've seen, and I, I think it's in Maine and across the country, is when kiddos haven't been in school or daycare uh, because of COVID-related issues, sometimes we're not hearing about families that um, are starting to struggle because the service providers that they're regularly seeing, they're not seeing. So that's that's been a, a concern for us, and we continue to keep our ears and eyes open for potential um, areas where we still might be able to help. And for uh, adoptive foster families in Maine, Many of the precautions are still staying the same, um, like I mentioned, with taking in donations and allowing people in the office. So we still are not allowing uh, folks into the office, but we're doing curbside pickups and or mailing things to folks. And we have limited our times on when we take donations in so that way it, we can manage it with volunteers and staff a little easier. Those things still stay in play. But what but we've noticed, especially in some of our more rural counties that may not have gotten the COVID positive numbers that um, were there, that some of the other maybe more popular areas were getting during the beginning of the pandemic are now getting kind of those surges, particularly like in Aroostook County mm -hmm. and or Washington County. So what's tough with that is that the, the COVID relief money and the funding that was kind of came forward through at the beginning isn't as available or, or prevalent now while yet these more rural counties with less supports less services and probably more barriers to overcome are now getting those surges schools are closing and the relief funding and support are not there so for those smaller areas it's um it's a real challenge we actually had this conversation among the staff today is okay well how do we how are we going to get people some of their basic necessities you know they they feel that they can't leave their home again but yet the those additional supports that may have came shortly after some of the stay-at-home orders and those things and when this you know being in a state of an emergency aren't there right now so that's that's one of the things that we're having ongoing discussions about how can we continue to partner with other organizations to make ends meet where we necessarily can't, I mean, not one organization can do it all. So it really takes, you know, a, a whole community and uh, multiple organizations to be able to help, help meet families and maybe think a little more outside the box. You know, we might not have been able to help in this way, but maybe we can do it this, this other way. And, and this other organization they can potentially pick this end up. So yeah, it's really about getting creative. Travis, that's where something like say families can help in some ways if there's volunteers available in the in that in whatever area is being mentioned or where the 
the folks that you're seeking to help uh, live is that the giving of items and food or whatever it might be with say families, it's done one-on-one like family to family. So it's not as much of a heavy lift as you would be providing something for many folks. So that's something to consider. And I think probably you already have calling, say, families and asking for a family friend and being specific about what the need is. Yeah, certainly we have. And I appreciate that reminder, Robin. Here's Tracy Hare from Home Inc. COVID-19 has permanently changed the way homeless systems can and will be delivered in Maine. Um, And I don't think our shelter is an exception. I don't think shelters will ever go back to congregate settings as much as they were. Um, I'm on the statewide homeless council main shelter network and our discussion has been what how do we move forward now and provide a homeless response system that um, can protect people and individuals and families experiencing homelessness so for home um, we'll probably continue with the reduced number of beds keep people separated Mm -hmm. in their rooms as much as possible Um, um, you know keeping in mind families don't have a choice when they're in our shelters Mm -hmm. right at least we can provide a safe, the safest space possible. So we'll continue with social distancing. We will not open the shelters to the public for some time. Uh, this is their home. When we're asked to shelter in place, that's where folks have to shelter. So we're honoring that. We reopened to the public briefly, and then the Delta variant shifted that for us. So we're we're back to that. Uh, we never um, dropped our guard on um, face coverings and so forth. Um, uh, so I, I think you'll see um, shelters in Maine begin to shift how we respond to families experiencing homelessness. One thing I just want to echo what Travis said, there are far fewer resources le- available to us now that we're not in a state of emergency. Um, for example, hotel rooms were a go-to for families, um, is particularly in the DV world. Um, families with kids were being put into hotel rooms. That funding existed through the state of emergency process, as Travis was saying. So in a sense, we have a more uh, aggressive virus with fewer state responses. And so the nonprofits Mm -hmm. are carrying this on our backs in a way. Um, For us, I think we'll be moving this way in perpetuity, um, spacing people apart, um, uh, keeping internet in rooms. And, And we've really learned a lot from this about the dignity of people in our homeless shelters. Um, So we'll stay the course. Absolutely. Yes. We talked a lot about the challenges. So I'm very curious to know about um, any of the brighter moments from this very challenging year and a half that you can tell our listeners about if there are any moments of resilience or triumph from your clients or staff that come to mind. Um, I'd really love to hear about them. I have a couple of uh, stories that aren't aren't just singular. This is Robin Chamberlain from Safe Families for Children. But the the parent or the caregiver that is courageous to begin with, COVID or no COVID, to call for help on their own voluntarily, and then to do so in these COVID times when there is a lot of fear. And as Travis was, I think it was mentioning before about the different types of communications that are coming out that can be contradictory. They're still calling. Parents parents are still calling. Uh, And so that has really been a bright spot. And then the volunteers are still volunteering in spite of their own fears, in spite of the extra things that they need to do, like Tracy was sharing with the shelters. You know, they're still they're still uh, saying yes, uh, even in the midst of having to do many extra things and precautions. So those are some of the bright <laughs> the bright spots. Here's Travis Bryant. <clears throat> One of the things that I've really seen is just the resiliency of of families and, and particularly we're, we're an organization that primarily works with foster adoptive and kinship families so that's the, the narrow scope that i'm speaking from but you know during when the pandemic first hit affm had just received a grant to really expand upon their kinship services that's why we, we always say in the kinship program because kinship families are about 60 percent of the folks that we serve 
And so we actually mm-hmm. ended up hiring three full-time staff during the pandemic uh, to try, you know, to help out families. There's somewhere a little over 9,000 kids that are residing with uh, grandparents who are identified as head of household. So it's it's a pretty large population in the state of Maine. And uh, and it's always the the foster adoptive kinship parents that are that are asking how can we do more how can we help and it's like caring for these kids who have been through a traumatic experience uh, you also have all these people that are now coming into your lives and into your homes you, you never some of the folks have never even got to see the face of these people who are coming in their homes and so it adds another level of unfamiliarity with who they're working with and so you know, the people that we hired, we, we always hire folks with the experience. So all of our staff are foster adoptive kinship family members. And so they, they come at it with that peer support. And just, I mean, just the other day, we're, we're on a, a meeting with, uh, uh, you know, probably 20, 30 families. And, uh, you know, families are the ones that are offering, this is what, you know, how about we do this? Can we take on this? Can we do that? And uh, mm-hmm. the amount of things that they're doing and what communities are rallying around, I think it's just nice to see, even though we're physically apart and expecting to be more isolated, that we're finding these unique ways to come together and really rally around people. And I think that's one of the most uplifting things is when folks are mm-hmm. still able to get through those barriers. Absolutely. I I think COVID has taught us the resilience of human nature. I think we've all mentioned resilience and I think that comes to mind. I, you know, I I can't help but feel really proud of the guests that come into our shelters and our staff that do the work. I I remember early on in the pandemic, um, a staff member, Jerry and I, we were walking down to the shelter and we had no PPE and there was a potential symptomatic person And so we're walking in with welding shields and all of these kids are jumping on us. I say all, there were about four in a time when we're not supposed to go near each other. And so it really just spoke to the bravery of our staff in the beginning, you know, not knowing what to do and just jumping in there with welding shields, some of us bandanas, um, just to check in on folks. But fast forward through that, you know, a single mother and her two kids finding housing, and um, she taught one woman was in our shelter briefly and didn't need our help, she said, but she, she's a helicopter mother. And I guess I learned from that that meant a mother who hovers around her children and, you know, um, just they, they never stopped working toward their goals in, in, in the middle of the crisis. And then one more story that happened. Um, we hire people with lived experience of homelessness and um and myself included, I was homeless when I first came here. One of our board members came here first for services, then she worked here and then left and has now um, returned to join our board, but she got her degree in the middle of the pandemic. So there were lots of reasons to celebrate and just honor human beings. Um, so uh, it's all, it, it really was a heartwarming year, even in crisis. I think it brought out the best of us all. Collaboration, again, I've got lots of highlights, but the collaboration of all organizations in the shelter network was incredible. It saved lives. Thank you. That's so heartening to hear. I think when I've asked this question in the past, typically the answer has been having to do with the rallying of community and folks coming together to help one another, which is really wonderful to hear. Before we get into our last set of questions, I want to take a few seconds to remind our listeners that they're tuned in to Community Wellness Watch on WERU Community Radio. 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. My name is Emma and I'm your host. And today we're talking about housing for children and families in need throughout the pandemic with Travis Bryant, who's the executive director of Adoptive and Foster Families of Maine, Inc. and the Kinship Program. Robin Chamberlain, who's the director of Safe Families for Children in Maine. And Tracy Hare, who's the executive director of Home Inc. Tracy, I have a question for you specifically. Is there anything you wish that more people knew about the homeless shelter system, um, either in general or in Maine or home specifically? 
Sure. I think people, um, the days of the homeless shelter system or the a homeless shelter just being three hots in a cot are behind us. Um, Maine has a, a very close-knit shelter community. There's, um, I think it's around 37. I could be a little off on that. Um, shelters in Maine, and we meet every month. It's a very well-coordinated system. Uh, it could be improved in some areas, and we're working on that. But when somebody comes to shelter, the process begins with that person or family to work on barriers to housing. The ultimate goal is permanent housing. So um, while a person's in shelter, we're working on challenges with with the criminal justice system or with employment or with transportation or um, challenges that Robin and Travis may intersect with if there's um, uh, caregiving arrangements. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a much more integrated, holistic system uh, when folks are coming into the shelter system now. Travis and Robin, what advice would you give to families who are housing children in need, how they can best support them? I'm sure for so many children, it can be a really scary experience to be in a new home. And what would you say to families or to parents who are welcoming these children in? What we do with safe families is to really look to the caregiver or parent that's actually making the inquiry about um, help and if it's about hosting, whether it's during the day or overnights, to really listen to the caregiver or the parent about their child, right? Because parents are the ones who know, <laughs> parents or caregivers, parent, permanent caregivers know the most about their children. And so we really want uh, and seek to have the volunteers who are housing children and hosting them to really look to their parents or their caregivers. And then as much as possible, have them meet, which again, if it's not, if it can't be face-to-face, -face, either virtually, we do three-way calls or four-way calls and, and those kinds of things so that the um, parent and caregiver really sees themselves as the responsible one for their child and they're making this decision to have their child with someone they don't know yet. And so that would be, I think, the, the most important or the priority is to really make, help make, we may help make that connection between the parents who are hosting and then the parents who are calling for help. I have to echo what Robin said, you know, People, people are their own experts of their own lives, and, uh, mm. and we need to look to them to really figure out and help them identify what support looks like. You know, I think getting, getting their input on that and making sure that they're the ones guiding and leading that as we're, we're kind of more of like the bumpers on the uh, bowling alley, you know, help, help get the ball mm -hmm. down the alley, but we're, we're not there to to toss the ball for them and we're not there to knock down all the pins. So I think, you know, really asking them that that's one thing, you know, that our staff do is so, so what does support looks like or, or what is it that, you know, is important to you? You've shared a lot with me right now. What's, what's a couple of those immediate things and what's something we can work towards after that. And so I think the same goes for the families when they have their kids and, you know, they're, they're welcoming kids into their home is, to, to ask them, you know, what, what are some of the things that, that they like to do? What are some of the things that will help them feel comfortable? Are there certain foods that you may not want me to cook, you know? And what may I call you? You know, well, what, do, what do you want to be known as? And giving them, them them choices and that opportunity to feel like they have control because there's very little that they do have control of in this world. And so, you know, mm. especially with the families we're working, like I said, they're moved from a very tough situation, but that situation is, is what they know is life. That's what they know is normal. That's what they know is love and care. And so when you remove that from a child, whether it's good intentions or, or not, there's still a loss there that they're grieving. And so they come with a lot of baggage and it's not something that's drugged behind them or thrown over their shoulder. It's things that you can't see. Being mindful of that and with every interaction and trying to be you know as, as empathetic and understanding as you can. And I think that's really the message for any person that you come in contact with on a daily basis. Well, we are 
almost at the end of our hour and I don't want to keep you all for too long. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, Before we go, could you let our listeners know where they can find you or how they can contact you to access your services or get involved or become volunteers if they're interested? And all of this information will be in the show notes as well. For say families, probably the quickest way would be go would be go to our website, safe-families.org, and then it'll direct them whether they're asking to have help or they're looking to volunteer or whatever it is they're seeking. Safe-families.org. And for Home Incorporated, we're in Hancock County in Orland. Um, we can be reached by phone at 469-7961. We're also online. Uh, we have a Facebook page under Home Inc. And that's checked uh, every day, those messages. And we also have a website, homeemmausa.org, H-O-M-E-M-M-A-U-S-A dot O-R-G. And that's a mouthful. So I recommend you just Google Home Inc. and I'm sure you'll get to it. I, I feel the, the pain of, of saying that, Tracy, when I have to say adoptive and foster families remain in a kinship program every time. So, um, But contrary to our name, our website is really easy to remember. Uh, it's www.affm.net. Uh, and our, our phone number is 207-827-2331. And, uh, you know, look forward to anybody that wants to call and, and talk. And it was a real joy, uh, Tracy and Robin, to, to have this time with you and as well with you, Emma. Thank you. I cannot thank Travis, Robin, and Tracy enough for taking the time to talk with me about their very important work providing housing and support to children and families in need in our community. This is WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Thank you so much for tuning in to our second full-length program of Community Wellness Watch, a program about public health. My name is Emma Weiss, WERU intern and your Community Wellness Watch host. Stay tuned for monthly programs talking with other healthcare providers about how they have adjusted their practices throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and how they continue to keep our communities healthy and safe. Information on next month's program will be on WERU.org soon. Thanks again to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Stay well, everyone.